0: The National Archives podcast series. This talk is called Sylvia Pankhurst, Suffragette, Socialist, and Scourge of the Empire. It was presented by Catherine Connolly and recorded on the seventh of November, twenty seventeen, at the National Archives, Q. <laughs> Thank you so much and thank you everybody for coming and I really want to say thank you to the National Archives it's very special to be able to come and do this talk here today because um, I did so much research at the National Archives into Sylvia Pankhurst and as a a leading suffragette what I also was struck by when I came to the National Archives to do some of the research on the book was not only were there as I expected all these documents on the suffrage period uh, and then through the First World War and then through the 1920s but then also into the 1930s, into the 1940s, into the 1950s. And um, I remember just the, the kind of the excitement of ordering these boxes of material, not really knowing what was what was going to be inside these kind of thick, heavy cardboardy boxes, and opening them up, and then seeing the documents wrapped up in the little bits of ribbon, and then opening these documents from, say, the 1940s and the incandescent rage of the government documents about this one individual, Sylvia Pankhurst, was so incredibly striking. I mean, it bounced off the page, and to be sat there reading this in a very, very quiet room and seeing what government officials wrote uh, secretly to each other about Sylvia Pankhurst was—it was revelatory uh, about about what kind of a person Sylvia Pankhurst was. There was fury. There was anger. The way that uh, her her personal life was discussed in this kind of. Um, mocking and a completely unpleasant way every time that her son Richard Pankhurst was referred to is referred as her illegitimate son or illegitimate child and just to give you sort of a, a flavor of, of one of these uh, documents uh, this is just just one of many and actually quite quite typical this is what a foreign office official uh, wrote to the British minister in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia in 1947 about Sylvia Pankhurst. And I quote, We agree wholeheartedly with you in your evident wish that this horrid old harridan should be choked to death with her own pamphlets. (laughs) And that tone was fairly typical uh, of uh, so many of the documents held here in the National Archives uh, written by government uh, ministers and officials about Sylvia Pankhurst. And this really encouraged me to think about why was it that Sylvia Pankhurst was somebody um, who inspired such hatred and such anger in the British establishment. And I think part of the, you know, when we're thinking about this, you know, that, that's 1947, so many years after women won the right to vote. And I think one of the kind of crucial things about this is that Sylvia Pankhurst never stopped campaigning. So she is obviously, and of course, very, very famous for the work that she did in the militant suffragette movement, but this was also somebody who opposed the outbreak of the First World War um, from the start. This was somebody who knew that the war would be used to further exploit working people in Britain, that the cost on the war uh, of the war would disproportionately fall on the poor, and therefore opposed the war. Tried to set up schemes that could support working class women, um, who she knew would be made to suffer disproportionately. This was somebody who, and we meet here uh, on the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. This was somebody who, when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out, threw her wholehearted support behind that, she completely inspired by the democratic innovation of the Soviets, you know, um new institution that arose out of the 1905 revolution in Russia, where people could elect from their own army battalions or from their own workplaces, directly elect this kind of idea of direct democracy, uh, she found incredibly inspirational, and was somebody who had to smuggle herself aboard like tiny fishing boats and to sneak out of Britain illegally to go and attend international uh, communist congresses in the 1920s. This was somebody um, who was one of the first people in Britain to identify the dangers of the rise of fascism in Europe. Um, this was in particular because she had lots of links with Italian communists and socialists. But somebody who, it, throughout the 1920s, was talking about what Benito Mussolini represented as an attack on democracy, um, as an attack on the Italian working class, as an attack on Italian women, and was really trying to reveal this At a time when Winston Churchill, for example, was openly praising Mussolini because he saw Mussolini as an effective way to combat uh, the rise of the left uh, in Italy. And it was through this campaigning against fascism in Italy that Sylvia Pankhurst really alighted upon the last great cause of her life, which was the campaign for the freedom of Ethiopia when fascist Italy invaded Ethiopia in 1935 with very little international outcry and indeed the collusion of the British and the French powers uh, who really saw this as, as colonialism in Africa, which oh, they'd been engaged in for centuries. Um, Sylvia Pankhurst was one of those who was campaigning against the fascist invasion of Ethiopia. She set up a new campaigning newspaper to reveal the kind of fascist war crimes that were being committed there, to report internationally from the anti-fascist struggle and also uh, to get out reports from Ethiopian resistance fighters um, who were fighting uh, the Italian fascists uh, who'd invaded Ethiopia. And she didn't stop campaigning there, but... After the Second World War, she then campaigned to keep Ethiopia out of the clutches of the British Empire and for Ethiopia to remain an independent country, and that's that's what you see her uh, campaigning here um, for in in the 1940s. And this is the reason that, in fact, she ended her life in Ethiopia. She went out um, to try and help uh, rebuild the country in in the 1950s. So this was somebody who never ever made peace with the British establishment. Um, you know, so many of the um, leadership of the suffrage movements uh, through their uh, support behind the British states at the outbreak of the First World War. No, this For Sylvia Pankhurst, this was somebody who never, ever stopped campaigning for justice and, and for equality. And this Sometimes the kind of range of causes that Sylvia Pankhurst espoused has sort of caused uh, difficulties for historians. So many of the accounts that I read um, about Sylvia Pankhurst's life kind of were, were quite baffled and sort of failed to explain the range of all of the causes that she got involved with. Um, and I think to understand the kind of links that she made... Um, and why she was doing this, we, we ought to look really at the kind of formative campaigning experience of her life, uh, which was her experience in the suffragette movement, the militant suffragette movement. And that's what I'm going to focus on today. So, Sylvia Pankhurst came from a radical family in Manchester. She was born in Manchester in 1882. Here she is with her mother, Emmeline Pankhurst, and her older sister, Emily, uh, Christabel Pankhurst. And Sylvia Pankhurst had really always wanted to be an artist, um, which she linked with her her campaigning ideals. Um, This was somebody who, as a child, was very struck by the disparity between rich and poor in Manchester. This was something that she felt was a, a really criminal injustice. She came herself from quite a comfortable uh, background, but to see that there were children that lived in backgrounds that weren't comfortable, there were poor children in Manchester, was something that she found absolutely intolerable. And... Sylvia Pankhurst, who was a a very talented artist, wanted to use her artistic talent to really beautify the struggle for a better world. She wanted people to live beautiful lives and hated um, what what poverty did to people and how it it deprived people of beautiful things. So that's really where she was um, initially coming from. And she was a young art student in London When her mother and her older sister founded um, a new campaign, uh, a new organization to campaign for votes for women, the Women's Social and Political Union. Now, this campaign was different on a number of levels. Um, Firstly, because of the kinds of women that it sought to organize. Um, At this point, the Pankhurst family were very much involved in the Independent Labour Party um, up in the northwest, and they sought to involve uh, women who were involved in this early socialist movement, very much linking up the question of uh, working-class representation in parliament with the question of women's representation in parliament. And so they also sought to organize women trade unionists up in the Northwest. This was the most densely, uh, the place where where women were most densely organized in trade unions, in the cotton factories um, and in the mills. So this was one kind of unique part of this. And the other unique part uh, was the kind of tactics that they decided to employ feeling that the campaign for women's suffrage had been ignored and treated with contempt by the politicians for so long, they decided they needed to attract new attention to their cause. And this, again, came from the kind of social movements that were around in Manchester in the time that they formed, particularly the campaign to win provision for the unemployed, So there was a a campaign in in 1905 in in Manchester over this and there was a big demonstration and instead of at at the end of the demonstration, people just going home, a few unemployed activists blocked the road and got arrested and went to court. And this attracted the attention of the newspapers and this really inspired Christabel Pankhurst Sylvia's older sister, and Annie Kenny, who was one of the women um, who emerged from that group of women trade unionists up in the Northwest involved in the local socialist movement. Annie Kenny herself was a mill worker. And what they decided to do was to use the election campaign leading up to the 1906 general election. This is late 1905. Uh, when the liberal candidates are out campaigning, everybody gets this sense that the Liberal Party are going to form the next government. And they decided to put prospective cabinet ministers on the spot and to ask them, if they became the next government, would they grant votes for women? And so they went to a big meeting in Manchester and they asked this question. And the politicians, because they didn't really like this question, uh, adopted a tactic of just ignoring women uh, whenever they asked uh, these kinds of questions. But they refused to be ignored and they got up on chairs and they asked the question again and they asked the question again and when they were shouted down and they were dragged off their chairs, they got up again and they asked the question again until they were thrown out of the meeting and then arrested for causing a disturbance. Now, this was the start of militancy, this use of direct action and civil disobedience in order to attract attention to the suffrage cause. And it started with women asking for their questions to be answered in public meetings. And I think that's, that's quite an important sort of reminder uh, about where militancy came from. And this really injected a whole kind of new energy, and new spirit into the campaign for votes for women. Now, Sylvia Pankhurst at this time as as an art student in London, is charged with organising the campaign in the capital city. Um, And we can see what kind of a campaign she envisaged and tried to build um, through her artwork at this time. So... This was uh, the design that she made for the first membership cards of the Women's Social and Political Union. And I think it's very, very clear what kind of audience she was aiming at and envisaging, um, inspiring to be the, the new suffragettes as they were dubbed these new suffrage campaigners. It's very clearly a depiction of working-class women on the march demanding their rights. They're wearing the clothes of the Lancashire workers, the clogs, the shawls, the aprons. These are working-class women, and this is exactly the kind of campaign that Sylvia Pankhurst wanted to build. She went out to East London, um, which at the time was one of the very poorest parts of London, uh, but also, crucially, within marching distance of the House of Commons, but also a a region of London with a a very radical history of of working-class activism. And so this was the campaign that Sylvia Pankhurst started to build. Later on, uh, her older sister, Christabel Pankhurst, moved down to London uh, and took charge of the campaign, and we can see changes in the political tone of this campaign as time wears on. And there's a there's a whole number of, of factors that influence that, and indeed the different politics of the Pankhurst sisters. Uh, one of the crucial things, I think, is what happens around 1908, where the... Government had turned round to the suffrage movement and told the women that, of course, they would be prepared to grant them the vote if they could prove there was popular support for their demand. But there wasn't really popular support for votes for women, so they couldn't do it. It would be undemocratic, if you like. Um, so the suffragettes responded to this challenge. Um, and organized what at the time was the biggest demonstration in British political history. A huge, peaceful demonstration um, in Hyde Park. Women came from all around the country, men as well, um, you know, organized on huge trains that came down. Um, and, an enormous campaign to advertise this big political demonstration. And when they went to the government and said, Well, what is your response now? We've organized this enormous demonstration they were still ignored. In fact, a very angry demonstration of suffragettes outside parliament was greeted by police who sexually assaulted and beat up the women who demonstrated about why on earth um, has our big demonstration not been listened to. And this really provides a dilemma for the suffrage movement about which direction to go in. And the argument was put by very many of the leading figures that what was needed was a campaign in which the richer and more prominent women would be given the leading roles and ought to lead the campaign. And this was how we can see this kind of change in articulation here with these, these two quotes. One is um, from a leaflet in 1906, while uh, Sylvia Pankhurst was, was still the honorary secretary of the Women's Social and Political Union in London. And this is, what, this is how she was envisaging this campaign for the vote in 1906. She said the vote is the organized workers' most powerful weapon, as men are now finding out. The Labour Party is the best proof of how the vote can benefit the workers. And she then related that to what the vote could do for women. This was all about self-representation. By about 1908... Uh, we get a change in in the language. And this is what uh, one of the leading members said, who remained a very, very good and lifelong friend to Sylvia Pankhurst, it's important to remember. But this was the kind of argument that she was making, which was very different. She said, I appeal, especially at this moment, this is just after the Hyde Park demonstration, to the strong to come forward now and take upon their shoulders the burden of the weak. It is not the toiling mother, the sweated worker, the deserted wife, the worsted in life, who can bear the stress and strain of the battle we are fighting for women's deliverance today. Therefore, it was not women um, who were redefined as weak and not capable of leading the struggle. But as you can see from this kind of imagery from 1912, there becomes a greater emphasis on sacrifice within the campaign, but also the sacrifice of a few doing it on behalf Of the others who can't campaign for themselves. This argument was put that women's lives, working women's lives, were too hard, it would be too difficult for them to lead this campaign. Now, what we see is that uh, working class women were increasingly marginalized uh, within the movement. And this was something that Sylvia Pankhurst was very, very much opposed to, um, both on principle but also practically. As the suffrage movement develops, as the government ignores all of those peaceful campaigns, those huge demonstrations, militancy, this use of direct action, starts to escalate. So in response to the kind of abuse that women are getting on demonstrations, in response to being ignored time and time, women start to attack property, sacred to the British state, smashing windows of government buildings. And this begins to escalate right up to arson, when women are sent to prison, they are not recognized as political prisoners. So they w- there was even a class system in the British prisons. This meant that they weren't you know, allowed to wear their own clothes. They weren't allowed to have newspapers. They weren't allowed to have writing materials. They were sent to prison as if they were just vandalizing property for the sake of it, out of a criminal intent. There was no recognition that what they were doing was motivated by politics. In response to this women in the prisons went on hunger strike to demand the right to be treated as political. The state's response was not to treat women as political prisoners, but to force-feed them, an absolutely barbaric and torturous procedure, which for some women went on day after day after day, women being force-fed multiple times, something that was incredibly traumatic and painful and indeed incredibly dangerous. So this was a campaign that was escalating. The sentences were getting longer, um, and it was very much suspected that some of the leading members of the campaign, including Sylvia's own family, were very much at risk of dying. And at this point, Sylvia Pankhurst really believed that the suffrage movement needed allies. It needed um, to win wider support, not be eschewing that wider support. And this comes at the same time as there is a huge working-class revolt in Britain very often dubbed the Great Unrest, um, which really breaks out about 1910 and runs all the way through um, up until the outbreak of the First World War. And this was workers who'd largely been classed as unskilled, workers who very often didn't have their own trade unions, working in some of the most difficult and unpleasant conditions, were going out on strike, forming their own trade unions, uh, winning better conditions at work, and this was happening all over the country, in industry after industry. And this also involved, crucially, women workers, who've been written off as being unable to organise themselves. Because you know, if women, you know, very much at the bottom of the pile um, of employment in Britain, if they went on strike, the argument went, well, they'd just be replaced by other desperate women who, who really wanted a job and would work for even lower wages and in even worse conditions. But in fact, what was seen in 1911, there was a huge strike down in Bermondsey in London, South London, and these were women who worked in the biscuit and the jam factories all along the docks in some of absolutely the most dangerous and unpleasant conditions in Edwardian Britain. If you read the accounts of what it was like to work in a jam factory, these were women who worked very, very long hours. Um, They were dealing with boiling jam very often, having to carry around huge, heavy vats of boiling jam, floors that were covered with water, incredibly slippery um, because other women were in the same place, washing the bottles that the jam would be poured into. The kind of industrial accidents that women, and even death that women suffered in these trades, was absolutely horrendous, and they were treated with contempt by their employers because their employers believed they couldn't organise themselves, because they believed there'd always be women desperate enough to take those jobs, they could just always sack the troublemakers. But they couldn't do it if all the women went on strike, and that's what started to happen in 1911. So women like these uh, at Pink's factory um, in Bermondsey went out on strike. Very often these are what would be called wildcat strikes. They just went out, just left the workplace, and they went down the road uh, singing this uh, this refrain from a music hall song at the time, Fall in and follow me. And that's what they would sing at other women workers in their factories, and then they would come and join the struggle. So Sylvia Pankhurst was incredibly inspired by this whole wave of action, Um, and instead of seeing these women as as weak and unorganizable, what Sylvia Pankas was seeing was that when these women acted together collectively, these women had potentially very, very great strength um, to shape the movement, but could also be potentially very important allies, these new women. Uh, you can see here the kind of the smiles on their faces as they 're taking this action um, that these women suddenly tasting power and political ideas perhaps for the first time in their lives very much needed to be connected up with the suffrage movement. So in 1912, which is at a time in the suffragette movement when Sylvia's mother, Emmeline Pankhurst, um, had been sentenced to nine months in prison, um, and this was you know, nine months if you were then undergoing a hunger strike, being let out of prison for a time, then rearrested, is a sentence that can go on indeterminately. When her older sister Christabel Pankhurst, to flee the same fate and to direct the movement, had fled to Paris, Sylvia Pankhurst decides um, to really try and change the direction that the suffragette movement was going in and move away from the kind of more elitist politics that her older sister her mother had been espousing and try to reform a suffrage movement in East London, which she'd done really at the beginning of the campaign. So here she is uh, setting up the East London Federation of the Women's Social and Political Union in 1912. But it it wasn't just a need for allies that, that Sylvia Pankhurst did this. She also saw that these people who were fighting for their rights at work against immediate grievances, were very much facing the same kind of enemy as the suffragettes. When we think about the kind of repression that those who went on strike in the great unrest faced, Winston Churchill sent troops to go on fire, live rifles, at striking miners in Wales. Winston Churchill was also the one who'd sent the police out against the suffragettes, campaigning in Parliament Square where they'd been sexually assaulted and beaten up. It was the same government that sent those troops to Wales, that sided with the employers, was the same government that was sending women to prison and condoning their torture through forcible feeding in those prisons and refusing to give in to them. And really what she saw is that they were all fighting for a different kind of and a better world and that they would be much stronger linked up, that it was not only the same enemy, but they might be part of the same cause. And in 1913, something very significant happens in this strike wave in Ireland, in Dublin, um, then a part of the British Empire, where this wave of strike action, the formation um, and, and growth of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, is faced with a boss's lockout. The employers get together and decide that what they're going to do is lock out anybody who is a member of the trade union and essentially starve people out of their right to organise as trade unionists. The struggle is very quickly criminalised. Trade union leaders are sent to prison and people are facing starvation. Many of them try to send their children to England, um, away from Dublin, uh, because they're very afraid that their children were going to starve in the course of this struggle. And... At the kind of high point of this repression, James Connolly, one of the leaders of this struggle in Ireland, comes over uh, to Britain to appeal uh, for support from English workers. And he he spoke at the Albert Hall at this very, very high-profile meeting to appeal for that support. And on the platform, alongside him, was wanted by the police at this time – appears Sylvia Pankhurst who um, gets the most rapturous reception of all of the speakers at this time and in her speech what she what she talks about is how their cause is part of the same cause that they're fighting for a better world for working class men and women and for people's rights and it's it's this it's these kinds of links that Sylvia Pankhurst tried to make within the suffrage movement um, that resulted in her expulsion from the Women's Social and Political Union uh, in January 1914, so immediately after this, this Albert Hall meeting. Uh, she was summoned to see Christabel Pankhurst, uh, her older sister, in Paris. And according to Sylvia's accounts, this is the objection that uh, her sister Christabel outlines to the kind of politics, the kind of way that Sylvia was trying to shape the suffrage movement in Britain. So according to Sylvia, this is what Christabel said. A working women's movement was of no value. Working women were the weakest portion of their sex. How could it be otherwise? Their lives were too hard, their education too meagre to equip them for the contest. Surely it is a mistake to use the weakest for the struggle. We want picked women, the very strongest and most intelligent. So Sylvia Pankhurst went back to East London and continued to organise her campaign, but now independently um, and very much along the lines that that she'd always wanted to. And I think what's important about this campaign is the way in which she tried to connect up this political demand, the right to vote, with the immediate social and economic issues that women were facing in that part of London. And the, the way that they campaigned was so imaginative and and they found kind of incredible ways of doing this they did what they called canvassing even before women get the votes where they would go around and knock door to door on streets in east london and they would talk to the women who were there at home with their children very often doing work at the same time and (sighs) talk to them about did they want the vote did they know how this could potentially change their lives what were the problems in their lives that they were facing that they wanted changing So they very much tried to connect it up um, with the experiences that local women had and also tried to draw the kind of dynamism and strength from local women who were involved in this ongoing strike action in the Great Unrest. And there was very, very much of this in the East End of London. So this here is an image of women on strike uh, at Morton's factory, uh, which was a packing factory of biscuits and tea, um, all those sorts of things. So these are women who were going on strike in 1914. And they got many recruits from Morton's factory, uh, the East London Federation of Suffragettes. And you can just see here the kind of spirit and combativity of these women taking this kind of action. 600 women went on strike at Morton's factory. And you can see that by undertaking this action, by defying what they've been told to do all through their lives, you can tell the kind of liberatory effect... Um, that this is having. Here they are tango dancing, apparently, um, in the streets. So Sylvia Pankos very much wanted to draw that kind of energy and strength and collectivity into the suffrage movement. But also, she wanted the suffrage movement, this demand for these political rights, to then help these women campaign for better conditions in their own lives. And one of the most... uh, I think striking examples of this was she set up a junior suffragettes club um, for suffragettes aged 14 to 18. And one of their members was Rose Pengeli. So Rose Pengeli worked at Bax Asbestos Works in Bow. And she was a a 15-year-old member of the junior suffragettes club. And uh, she was because she was a, a very young woman in the workplace, she was uh, amongst the worst treated uh, in the workplace, um, so not only did she have to work in this asbestos factory, uh, which must have been pretty unpleasant, but also the boss expected her to iron his shirts and make his food, boil his potatoes and all these sorts of things. <laughs> Rose Pengeli organizes a strike amongst all of her workmates, leads them out uh, of the workplace and takes them to the Women's Hall, the headquarters of the East London Federation of Suffragettes, where she gets their picture taken and them on the front page of the East London Suffragettes newspaper uh, to publicise their cause. And I think in terms of the kind of confidence that gave um, that 15-year-old young woman is really a kind of statement about what the East London Federation of Suffragettes was achieving. Perhaps the greatest uh, achievement that they they got though was came in June 1914 where they combined the tactics of militancy with this kind of agitation um, that could reach far into working class communities in East London where by 1914 the Prime Minister uh, was really not receiving Uh, any deputations or having any meetings uh, with militant suffragettes, largely regarded them all as terrorists. And Sylvia Pankhurst decided that really working women's voices had to be at the heart of this campaign and had to be heard by the Prime Minister and was determined that the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, was going to be forced to back down on this So what she did when she'd been released from prison after undergoing um, hunger strikes herself and absolutely an an appalling level of, of forcible feeding, she couldn't even sit upright, was she decided to continue her hunger strike outside of prison. And she demanded to be taken to Parliament, and she said she was going to lie outside Parliament, lie down, because she couldn't even sit up. Um, This is how weak she was. She said she was going to um, stay there until the Prime Minister agreed to receive a deputation of working-class women from East London. And the Prime Minister eventually backed down and agreed to see a deputation of women. Those are the six women who went. Sylvia Pankhurst didn't go herself because she wanted working-class women to go and speak for themselves. They were chosen at mass meetings across the East End. Um, so they were they had to come and report back about what had happened, and they were local leaders, women that other women wanted to go and speak for them. And what happened in this meeting with the Prime Minister, I think, is, is incredibly interesting. Whereas the suffrage movement that Sylvia Pankhurst had been expelled from, and there was a very great pressure on many of the campaigners not to speak out about other issues. Sylvia Pankhurst's campaign had been very different. It had been all about connecting up the political campaign for the vote with all the, the wider changes that women wanted to see. And when these, these six women went to see the prime minister, they went and spoke about a huge range of issues. They talked about how cruel it was that as working-class women their husbands were going to die younger because of their experience at work and how difficult their lives were. They talked about how unsafe their housing was. They talked about extortionate rents that they couldn't really afford to pay. Uh, They talked about domestic violence. They talked about how the streets in which their children were playing were unsafe. They talked about prostitution. They talked about the double standards at work whereby women were paid less than men just simply because they were women and i want to um i want to read it it's a kind of quite difficult thing to read but i think it's important because it's what it's what this woman wanted to say to the prime minister when she got the chance um so this is what uh mrs watkins who who went as mrs ford uh called herself mrs ford that day this is what she said when she spoke to the prime minister she said this mrs ford i should point out had been a jam factory worker, um, so working in, one of the, in those conditions that I'd, I just described, uh, since the age of 11, and she was the breadwinner in her household. Her husband was too ill to work. So this is what she said. I should like to give you an instance of what happened to me and the sort of thing that happens to most women when they are left with young children. They know they are not earning enough to keep those young children and therefore are afraid to lose their work. In one place I was at, The manager was very anxious to kiss me, and I should have had to submit to that to keep my work. It was either a case of losing my own self-respect or losing my children's food. In the same place where I work, there was a young girlfriend of mine who worked with me, and she was perhaps somewhat weak-willed, and the inevitable result happened. She had to go to the workhouse to have a baby. When she came out, she had no mother and no home to go to. I took her with me, and she shared my bed and my room where there were five of us. Money was very short, and sooner than take the food, as she felt she was doing, out of my children's mouths, as she felt there was not enough for us, she went away. And I did not see her until three days afterwards when she was drawn out of the River Lee with her child. I think if women had something to do with making the laws, that is one of the first things they would alter. So that's what Mrs Ford wanted to tell the Prime Minister. Another woman here, Mrs Savoy, who also went under a different name that day, she called herself Mrs Hughes uh, because her husband didn't want his name in the paper. She'd been a brushmaker since the age of 10, um, and she'd been working making brushes for 40 years, over 40 years in fact. And she said this to the Prime Minister, I do not like having to work 14 hours a day without having a voice on it. And I think when a woman works 14 hours a day, she has a right to a vote, as my husband has. And he does not hardly work at all. <laughs> Which, apart from being a marvellous uh, introduction, of, uh, of Mr. Savoy uh, into this interview, I think tells us something incredibly important, which is the suffrage in, in Britain, the way that the vote was always granted was through property always. I mean, women were excluded in 1832 in what we still call the Great Reform Act, but was always granted uh, on a property basis on the basis that you know, a few more could be allowed into the fold if they wouldn't change the status quo, if they wouldn't threaten uh, the rights of property. What Mrs Savoy envisages is a totally different kind of world where those that do all the work really ought to receive political rights first. This is somebody who is viewing, the world, viewing a world transformed, a world turned upside down. And I think... This is what is so important about the kind of campaigns that Sylvia Pankhurst involved herself in all of her life. Um, This was a group of women who all of their lives had been told that their voices didn't count, that they, even by people who claimed to be fighting on their side, that they weren't intelligent enough, that they weren't strong enough, that they hadn't received enough education to campaign for themselves or to represent themselves. And what they did when they met the Prime Minister was to overturn all of those expectations to show that they could imagine completely different kinds of worlds, that they were prepared to fight for them. And I think this is what is consistent about Sylvia Pankhurst's activism all the way through her life. This is somebody who wasn't fighting for an elite few or for a a change for a small number of people. This was somebody who believed that democracy was... Really, something that was about self-emancipation, that everybody ought to have the right to represent themselves and define their own lives. And that meant that you couldn't exclude women, you couldn't exclude any women from their political rights, least of all working class women who did all of the work in society. But it also meant fighting against a world in which there was terrible poverty, in which some people's lives would be totally defined into where they'd been born, people would be deprived all of their rights and the right to enjoy any kind of their lives or define anything about their lives because of who they've been born, but it also meant fighting against the British Empire. It also meant fighting against colonialism, against some colonial power, just deciding what lives other people were going to lead. And it was that very radical and emancipatory concept of democracy that I think is so inspirational about Sylvia Pankhurst, but I also think it is the key to understanding why she was hated and seen as such a dangerous woman by the British establishment. podcast is copyright to the national archives all rights reserved it is available for reuse under the terms of the open government license